Welcome to the Tom Nelson podcast. My guest today is Jack McFerrin. I work for the Heartland Institute. I'm a research fellow within the Socialism Research Center and also Heartland's research editor. Um, I live here in Chicago. I've, I grew up here, lived here my whole life. Um, I've been working in this industry for about three years. Before that, I uh, worked in commercial real estate. So a bit of a bit of a career switch, but it's going well so far. Okay. And as I was saying earlier, I spent the last 24 hours listening to you speak quite a bit. It's fascinating stuff, uh, this ESG stuff. I have not uh, been very far down the rabbit hole, but uh, where should we start here? Do you want to talk to us about what ESG is at the very top here? Sure. And and I just wrote a very comprehensive uh, policy paper that was published um, in, in May uh, that was sent to a number of uh, state and federal legislators. And, and in that paper, we, we've got a pretty good uh, definition of what it is here. So at its core, ESG is a social credit scoring system that ideologically aligned elites and subservient bureaucratic and regulatory authorities have been developing to reset the global financial system to their advantage and fundamentally transform society in the process. Um, and ESG works by altering traditional frameworks of evaluating businesses and assessing investment risk. Rather than determining the creditworthiness and value of a business or industry based upon objective measures uh, like return on investment, consumer demand, and other material performance measures, ESG's architects are trying to judge entities based upon subjective and difficult to quantify social and environmental goals, which typically have little or nothing to do with business success in the marketplace. Um, entities deemed unworthy with, with bad scores, uh, such as those involved in hydrocarbon extraction, firearm manufacturing, or even agricultural production are being frozen out of financial markets, uh, while, while those that receive high scores, benefit from massive investment flows and just you know basic access to financial services, which many folks are not receiving anymore. So that, oh. that that's that's the basic <laughs> uh, picture. I, I was pleased to see in uh, back in January, Elon Musk tweeted that the S in ESG stands for satanic. I think sure. yeah, yeah I, I, I could see where he's coming from. <laughs> so um, is there a story about ESG and Tesla that somehow they got kicked out of an index because the, they decided they didn't like Elon? What was the deal there? Yeah, I, I, off the top of my head, I, I can't really remember the details too well. But but Elon, but, but Tesla was not given a particularly good ESG rating, which, which Elon thought was interesting considering their commitment to electric vehicles, which is a huge component of the uh, the E in ESG in terms of uh, reducing reducing emissions and going with with just battery powered vehicles and I don't know how that played out. There's a bunch of different ESG scoring systems, but he was displeased with the result for sure. Right. And there's just a huge yawning gap right between the ESG as presented to the public as it's being all about uh, making the environment better and equality et cetera and what it really is it's just a smokescreen for control, isn't it? It is. Uh, it, it's the implications of ESG are, are numerous, but you know, um, 
there there's the financial aspect and then there's the normative aspect and and the normative as- aspect is at least to me more important it it it's it, it's a method of centralizing power and control in the hands of a very small group of elites uh you know the the, the world's biggest asset managers the world's biggest banks insurance companies plus uh, of course international organizations like the UN the World Economic Forum the IMF the World Bank the Bank of International Settlements and finally, uh, you know, regulatory authorities like uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the Biden administration in general. And it's this immense public-private partnership where power is concentrated not in the hands of the people, but in terms of the people who are trying to govern the way that the rest of us live. Let's talk about ESG in practice. Uh, there's this great story you've had about uh, Bud Brigham. That you couldn't yes. get a loan. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, let me let me. Uh, I've got it in my. I, I'll just quote directly from a an article that was um, published by the Daily Caller. But to give the background, um, Brigham Minerals Executive Chairman Bud Brigham uh, testified under oath in front of the Texas Senate Committee on State Affairs that uh, Credit Suisse. Uh, a major Wall Street bank refused to offer him a loan unless he publicly supported the bank's climate agenda. Uh, Quoting from the Daily Caller, when he, Brigham, reached out to ask why Credit Suisse had failed to respond to his application, Brigham claims a representative at the bank said the bank might not be able to partner with Brigham, allegedly telling him that climate change is real and it's not debatable. Brigham claims he responded that the science is ever-evolving, prompting the representative to offer an opportunity to strike a deal, but only if Brigham parroted the bank's climate agenda. How about if I can get you some bullets to tweet? If you can tweet this out, I think there's a good chance we can do this deal, the representative allegedly said. Brigham said he then received an email with the bullet points. And that's just one small microcosm of how all of this works. A lot of times it doesn't even get to that point, because a lot of these mid to small sized companies are are coerced into doing this because they know that if they don't, they're done. They die in the vine. Yeah. So it seems like it's all about carrots for being woke in general. And then there's sticks for not being woke. And you got to toe the line or you, your company might be gone. Exactly. Couldn't have said it better. Yep. Well, how, how about the whole Bud Light thing and ESG and them going woke? Sure. Uh, yeah, the, the Bud Light thing, it, it's difficult to tie directly to ESG, but it's also impossible to ignore how ESG influenced uh, their decision to, for example, um, hire the transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney to, uh, I, what what did you, her face was on a Bud Light can and they did the whole advertising campaign around that. And of course, part of the S in ESG is about woke social policy and and it's it's hard to think that they didn't make that decision with the hopes of getting more investment and a higher ESG score uh of course that resulted in a massive backlash and they have already lost their their position as the world's top selling beer um and uh a lot of other companies have seen the same thing but that that's the general narrative that these companies are trying to to tow it's they they risk they risk losing the support of their customers, but if they don't go woke, they you know they're given the stick by by the world's largest money people. So 
So can you explain how this might work for a company like Bud Light or um, for any company? You actually get a number that there's someone who calculates a number and uh, you can point at this number and this is our ESG score. How, how does the scoring system work? Yeah, so I, I have a whole section in the paper about about the metrics. And, and one of the confusing things about ESG is that there are a number of different ratings companies and a, a number of different ways of calculating this score. Um, so, for example, um, one, uh, one academic report from 2021 aggregating evidence from more than 1,000 studies on ESG performance found that, quote, Studies use different scores for different companies by different data providers. Another 2020 study analyzed six prominent ESG ratings agencies and found that each of the six employed different category scopes, measurements, and weights. Researchers have also found that a rater's subjective view of the firm being examined influenced the rater's assessment. So overall, it, it's it's... <laughs> There really isn't a standardized measure. However, that is changing. That there are a lot of efforts right now to create one overall standard. That there's an there's an organization called the International Sustainability Standards Board, uh, which is affiliated heavily with the World Economic Forum. That is attempting to um, they call it harmonizing uh, ESG standards into into one framework for every company and individual on the planet. Um, but uh, for, for the sake of this paper uh, that, I, that I wrote and um, that a lot of people uh, a lot of people use the system promoted by the World Economic Forum and the International Business Council. Um, and in, in that in that framework, there are, let's see, 55 different metrics and they combine qualitative metrics such as material issues impacting stakeholders to, quantitative metrics such as total social investments. And under that second category, by the way, that that could include investment into, you know, community woke organizations like, you know, Planned Parenthood or Black Lives Matter. So the more money you give to these sort of radical social groups, uh, the better ESG score you get, at least theoretically. Um, some of the other metrics are, of course, heavily focused on the environment, like impact of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, and the the qualifier there is report wherever material along the value chain, uh, scopes one, two, and three, the valued impact of greenhouse gas emissions. Disclose the estimate for the societal cost of carbon used and the source or basis for this estimate. There are other metrics such as impact of air pollution, impact of water pollution, impact of solid waste disposal, impact of freshwater consumption. It goes on and on. Um, so that that's the that's the the basic idea behind these metrics, and they they're it's it's really important to understand that these metrics in many ways are inherently discriminatory. Um, so and and of course they 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 give the people controlling the, these frameworks immense power because new metrics or entirely new categories could be added to this system whenever it suits the, the figures involved in the creation and distribution of ESG scores. And these changes are made without any democratic processes. Um, so, and it, basically regarding groups of people, the metrics themselves are, are discriminatory because for one example, if, if certain corporate boardrooms consist of qualified and 
capable individuals who have been subjectively determined to belong to an undesirable social group, the company could be downgraded in its ESG score because of its non-diverse ethnic composition based on you know, skin color or, or based on gender or a yet-to-be-determined different factor. So, and, and the same thing goes for employees of the company. Uh, one of the one of the metrics is is based on um, percentage of uh, oh, what is it here? Yeah, diversity and inclusion percentage of employees per, per per employee category by age group, gender, and other indicators of diversity, e.g., ethnicity. Meaning that if a company has too many Hispanics compared to Asians, they could be downgraded in their ESG score. And of course, who knows what the right uh, percentage of different ethnic groups is. It, it's it's absurd. I mean, how is this in any way legal for to discriminate on the basis of race and gender and all these things? It isn't. It isn't. And that's why we're seeing a lot of pushback and, and new new policies being proposed that would uh, codify fair access to financial services. And the Trump administration actually attempted to do that in the final days of his presidency. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency introduced a uh, a new rule that would allow companies and individuals to receive the same access to financial services, regardless of what groups they belong in, and only and and their creditworthiness would be determined based on individual characteristics rather than group characteristics, right? And the Biden administration within two weeks revoked the rule. Um, that being said, that rule has provided the basis for a lot of uh, state level legislation, which has been going strong over the past couple of years. Uh, and and Florida is probably the most prominent example of um, of a state that has institutionalized the the, the fair access to financial services uh, language. So have you worked with uh, legislators around the country to uh, bring them up to speed on what's happening here and helping them to fight back? Yeah, uh, myself and and my my team at Heartland has been working heavily with with legislators in a number of states and um, federally. Obviously, due to our current partisan makeup and due to the fact that uh, President Biden is you know is is sitting at the ready with his veto pen, we can't make a ton of progress. But we have seen a lot more focus at the federal level, which is really uh, encouraging as well. Right. And you're particularly happy with uh, what's going on in Florida, right? With the pushback against ESG? Absolutely, yeah. because it, it includes uh, policies that, um, well, there's there's three major policies that that we, we recommend that states um, implement. And one is uh, based around pension fund uh, divestment. So um, withdrawing large state municipal public employee pension funds from investment fund management companies pushing ESG is a big is a big factor and then the second is uh revolves around uh, state contract prohibitions um pro prohibiting the state from contracting with entities that uh boycott certain industries like like hydrocarbon extraction firearms manufacturing whatever it is and then there and then the third in my opinion is is the most important which is the anti-discrimination regulations which is based around the fair access to financial services principle that we've already discussed um and uh, florida implemented all three in, in very comprehensive legislation that i believe was passed in uh in may of this year and hopefully other states uh take florida's lead because uh, governor DeSantis has been um very outspoken in his support for these anti-ESG measures and has actually led 
a uh, a coalition of states that are that are seeking to do similar things. So it does seem like this could be a major factor for companies looking to relocate that they might go to states where the business climate isn't totally crazy. I would think so. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, Stepping back, I wanted to understand who can get an ESG score. It could be just a single person or it could be a company or a state or a country. Is yeah, it so uh, it, it, it could be a sovereign country like Sri Lanka, for example, which we can get in, get into a little bit later. Yeah, but, let's do that. Yeah. Um, it could be a state, it, you know, like Utah, for example, was given a, a bad ESG score uh, by, I think it was S&P. Uh, last year, and and they were very unhappy with 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 that assessment. Um, at most commonly, ESG scores are given to large and medium sized companies, although very small companies have begun getting them as well. Um, and and even individuals, this is starting to happen too with with individuals, um, and that is extremely concerning. If if, if one's individual carbon footprint can be tracked and then that person can be uh, prevented from getting access to, you know, opening a bank account based on the fact that they ate too much meat in one week. Uh, you know, that, that that's, that's how we descend into totalitarianism, right? So this uh, could be tied into the whole CBDC thing then where they can track you and then uh, on an individual basis, they could say you've bought too much gas this week, no more for you till next week, that type of thing. Absolutely. And and if CBD, if we do uh, eventually end up with a Federal Reserve controlled and issued uh, central bank digital currency, it's it would almost certainly be integrated with ESG to, to govern and this is an entirely different topic that I will probably be writing a separate policy paper about, but um, it 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 would be programmable so that you could you know only spend a certain amount of your money on gasoline, only a certain amount of your money on meat, can only travel certain distances by by of course restricting your energy supply, can uh, force you to eat plant based meat uh, instead of meat from Cows, for example, because cows emit uh, too many pollutants, uh, according to to these people. So it's yes, I mean the integration of central bank digital currencies with with ESG is is truly the the end of the line. So both need to be opposed with every fiber of our being. They also could uh, separately just put an expiration date on some or all of your money, right? That you have to spend oh, it to encourage. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, they they could. I mean, they could do anything they want. That that's the whole point. That they could be, give you a a monthly stipend, and then you know, at the end of the month, your bank account goes to zero again. The whole point is that they have complete control over your money, and you have no power. Just as an aside, what do you think of uh, people going to Bitcoin to try to get around this? Yeah, the, the, there is some attractiveness to to crypto uh, as an alternative, and that's why a lot of the people that promote CBDCs are demonizing uh, the crypto industry because crypto is, or a lot of crypto is, is based on, uh, you know, decentralized ledgers, whereas CBDCs are based on a centralized hub. And I'm no expert on, on cryptocurrencies. I, I just know the very basics of, of the differences between crypto and CBDCs. And 
they're basically polar opposites. CBDCs are designed to be controllable from one source. Cryptos are designed to be decentralized with a bunch of different hubs that uh, make people anonymous as well. Whereas with a CBDC, everybody would be tracked with a digital ID. So a major reason uh, that people use to push back against Bitcoin is that uh, it takes a lot of electricity to mine it, et cetera, and uh, that's going to cause bad weather. Do you think that's a sincere thing that they really believe it's causing bad weather or you think no. they have other reasons for opposing it? it, it that, that's, that, that plays into the whole thing that I was just talking about. It, it's it's a smokescreen for them to demonize crypto. They're, they're, and yeah, I'm sure that it does use up a little bit more energy than than maybe certain people would like, but that that's not the primary reason for, for their demonization of crypto, no. So you mentioned Sri Lanka. Do you want to talk in detail about what happened there? I think that's fascinating. Sure, yeah. So let me uh, pull up the details here. But um, let's see. Yeah, so for example, uh, due to international pressure to embrace ESG, the Sri Lankan government imposed a regulatory ban on chemical fertilizers in April 2021 and signed on to a green finance taxonomy with the International Finance Corporation in May of 2022 that committed the country's farmers to using organic fertilizers, which are substantially less effective than uh, and efficient than chemical fertilizers. As a result, crop production was cut basically in half in less than a year. And this resulted in complete societal upheaval and riots in the streets that toppled the Sri Lankan government with these harmful effects still being felt by the Sri Lankan people today. I mean, they can barely afford to eat and feed, you know, they can barely feed themselves. And this is all based on these extremely short-sighted ESG measures. And this is not the only example of this occurring. You know, agriculture has been one of the industries that ESG's architects are are focusing on the most these days, and you know, w- with what we saw in in the Netherlands with with the uh, the Dutch farmers rising up in protest to the regulatory um, uh, policies that were strangling their ability to farm, and even in Canada and the United States, a lot of a lot of policies are being proposed and enacted to to limit the ability to for a farmer to do whatever he wants on his own land. And it's 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 stifling food production at a time when the world needs food. So wasn't there bragging at, from uh, Sri Lanka right before everything went to down the tubes that they had such a high ESG score? Yeah. And, and do you think that's a big factor then in the pushback or that uh, Larry Fink of BlackRock said he stopped using the term because it's been weaponized? Wasn't Sri Lanka a big part of that or not? I, I think it might have been. I, I think the bigger reason why Larry Fink has decided to not use ESG is because because there has been so much pushback from conservative states, um, from red states, that he he didn't want ESG to become a buzzword. One of the biggest, at least in my point of view, one of the biggest reasons that. ESG flew relatively under the radar until very recently. It, it was intentional. These these oligarchs running our entire you know banking and financial system, and then their um, 
their agents within within regulatory bodies. They they wanted to institutionalize this system before people could catch on. And fortunately, people did start catching on, and ESG became this this lightning rod political issue. And I mean, now even Republican, you know, twenty twenty four potential candidates are, are are talking about it. DeSantis is talking about it. Vivek Ramaswamy is talking about it a lot. I think he's written multiple books pretty much entirely about ESG. Donald Trump is talking about it. Mike Pence is talking about it. Uh, there are very few people not talking about ESG, especially on on the right side of the aisle. And that that public scrutiny, I think, is is forcing ESG's biggest architects like Larry Fink to to back away a little bit. Now, there are also, I believe, internal pressures, uh, you know, within within BlackRock and then BlackRock's clients. I mean, ESG is losing them money, and at a, at a certain point, pressure is going to be put on management to stop losing money for for these ideological causes. So, is he actually backing away, or is he just trying to do it uh, using a different name for it? And if so, what different is name. this new name? What, yeah, I don't, we don't know what the new name is, but I would imagine that there will be one. And I, I think that, you know, sustainable investments is is uh, is, in, is a synonymous term to ESG. And we'll see a lot more, uh, you know, nice sounding uh, names for for ESG uh, get get used a lot more than ESG, I think, in, in the future. And it's going to be important to drill down into precisely what those terms mean. So there's this whole idea in the Netherlands, maybe we're going to get rid of 20% of the cows, uh, things like that. Is that related to ESG, that part of it, or no? Yes, it is. I mean, it, it, I, I don't know if, if ESG was, was referenced in the, in the actual regulations, but one of the biggest pieces of ESG, if not the biggest piece, is the, the emissions reductions inherent within the, the E metrics. Um, and, and apparently... Uh, you know, according to ESG's overlords, cows and and agriculture in general are one of the largest emitters of uh, carbon dioxide uh, in terms of industries. And how about schemes like producing fake meat? Is there some, uh, you get a bonus somehow, you get a better ESG score if your company produces fake meat? Or a separate thing here is uh, just recently, they're talking about Bill Gates is related to this scheme where they're going to cut down 70 million trees and bury them. You get some sort of ESG bonus for doing crazy stuff like that, too. That I I could not give you an answer on, but it would not surprise me if that were the case. Okay, let's see. Oh, you said uh, on other podcasts you call this freedom versus slavery. Yeah, I guess it is. What we... Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, like we were talking about with with the CBDC ESG integration. I mean. We don't necessarily have a a true free market economy right now. I mean, we, we we've been lapsing into into cronyism for for a long time, but ESG takes it to uh, a whole nother level where it 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 destroys any semblance of free markets by concentrating. It, it, it's corporatism is what it is. It's it's and it's corporate interests working on behalf of a international body of of you know intergovernmental authorities and 
you know, the most powerful financial institutions in the world to promote certain objectives. It, it destroys national sovereignties. It, it, it destroys democratic institutions and it destroys individual rights via, via the discriminatory uh, nature of many of these policies. Right. And you work on, uh, is it the site called Stopping Socialism or you have a- uh, There are, are, are our research center's site is called stoppingsocialism.com, but we have a uh, we have a specific page on heartland.org's website, heartland.org slash ESG, where a lot of our work, all of our work on ESG has been published, including the policy paper that I wrote, which is at the very top of that page. Um, and, and yeah, any any information you could ever want about ESG can likely be found on that page. Yeah, so in the show notes already, I'm looking at it right now for this podcast, I have a whole bunch of links that uh, that are your links. There's one called the1818.com. That's also your site, right? The 1818 actually is undergoing renovations. We're going to be uh, transforming that into, into a new uh, a site, site focused for legislators, I believe, although that hasn't been, um, that hasn't been uh, quite finalized yet. So consider that one defunct for the time being. Okay. All right. But if people, legislators, et cetera, want help, uh, want to help uh, from you understanding this, they can contact you, right? They can go to your website and uh, either email you or call you. Absolutely. Yeah. Feel feel free to email me or anybody else at Heartland. We also have a uh, an ESG-centric email address called stopesg at heartland.org, which we monitor closely. Uh, so absolutely, any and all inquiries about this topic and any other topic are welcome. Okay. Uh, elsewhere, you've talked about a definition of fa- fascism. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. I, well, there are a lot of different perspectives on on what fascism is, but at its core, fascism, at, at least as espoused by Benito Mussolini uh, in, in fascist Italy, is using using the power of corporations to advance the interests of the state and combining state power and corporate power to to strengthen the state uh, and and lately fascism is of course <laughs> it's it's being used to to talk about any type of perceived authoritarianism but but what it really is 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 government and corporate uh you know and economic interests working along with social institutions to work in concert and and do whatever they want you know in, in the interest of, of those in power and that's what we're seeing with ESG it, it although it's arguably more of an international uh corporatism than a national corporatism because as I mentioned the most of the uh a lot of the power behind ESG is coming from international organizations and it erodes national sovereignty so it's being, that this type of international fascism or, or international corporatism is being used to further the objectives of these international oligarchs and and powerful political entities. And where does stakeholder capitalism fit in here? Yeah, so stakeholder capitalism has been developed as a term that runs counter to traditional shareholder capitalism. Shareholder capitalism is what uh, Milton Friedman famously um introduced uh, back in the early 70s in which he, he posited that uh, corporations should only work in the interests of their their shareholders and, and maximize profits and returns. And, and stakeholder capitalism essentially posits that corporations need to work on behalf of 
stakeholders. And of course, the term stakeholders is very subjective uh, and, and it can be it can refer to the employees of the company. It can refer to the corporate executives who manage the company. It can refer to the community uh, around which the company operates. It can refer to the environment, uh, which of course doesn't have a voice, but uh, other people you know, proxy on behalf of the environment, apparently. And uh, it's it's essentially a catch-all phrase to to directly subvert the shareholder capitalism doctrine. And then most importantly, Stakeholder capitalism is not capitalism. It, it is, it's more, and nor is it really socialism. It, it's, it's corporatism, AKA fascism, using pretty socialist words to try and make it seem palatable to the general public. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, people are making pension investing decisions based on woke reasons rather than real uh, solid financial reasons. Is there going to be some sort of uh, huge pushback from people whose pensions have been blown by their money being put into woke woke causes, and then their money's gone? Yeah, I think there already there already is to to a large degree. I, I, Congress attempted to um, pass a a law earlier this year that would bar uh, that would bar planned fiduciaries from investing based on based on woke or or progressive or or political ideological whatever uh, reasons and and force them to only consider material pecuniary factors and of course uh, Biden vetoed it and that effort died so and and that's why I say that with with Biden in the White House any sort of uh, federal legislation. Even if it does gain some bipartisan support, which which the legislation that I was just talking about did, I believe two Democratic senators uh, co-sponsored that legislation um, or signed on to it. I don't think they co-sponsored it, but they they signed on to it. Um, e- even if we do get a handful of uh, Democratic senators and congressmen to to sign on, Biden's going to veto it because he's he's part of this whole agenda. Uh, whose work do you like uh, besides your own? Who else is uh, do you think is doing good work, or who is an influence on you in learning more about this and understanding this better? You know, that's a good question. I, I would need to, I would need to think about that a lot because I've got a, I have a lot of different um, people that I follow. But uh, my my partners, uh, uh, Justin Haskins and Donald Kendall, uh, worked with uh, Glenn Beck to produce a few books called The Great Reset. Um, and then the, the sequel, which just came out called uh, Dark Future, which focused heavily on ESG. And that, that was a tremendous influence on me. I also recommend following the work of uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, who is who has talked extensively about all of this and, and written extensively about it in various publications outside of just his own books. And that would be a good uh, jumping off point for all of this. All right. And you are not active on uh, personally on social media, right? But you're writing papers? You're Correct. Yes. I, I write op-eds, papers, edit papers, manage various websites, um, but no social media for me. <laughs> uh, any books in your future? Are you writing any books? Well, uh, my my another one of my team members and I are, are finishing up a, uh, a short book right now um, called Socialism at a Glance that, that I can... Uh, give more updates on when we've when we've completed it but that's that's going to be aimed towards uh educating uh mainly high school students about the the evils of socialism especially as we see 
uh, socialism gaining more more traction uh, in in politics in, in America and elsewhere. All right. Uh, just before uh, we talked, I sent you a link from James Lindsay about what uh, woke is Marxism. Do you have any thoughts on that yet or no? I don't yet. I, I still need to look at that. I, I know that uh, James James Lindsay has, uh, you know, done, I, I believe he just came out with a, a book uh, about it. And just very off the top of my head, yes, uh, there is a, there are many elements of Marxism within what wokeism is in many ways Marxism. But I would need to draw some coherent thoughts together to give you a better answer. Do you have any other anecdotes like the Bud Brigham one or any other ones, uh, real life uh, stories of people who have uh, ran into problems because of this crazy ESG stuff? Anything you have, I'd love to hear. Sure. Uh, well, you know about the the ExxonMobil engine number one. It's it's hard to find individual people, but it but it, it it's easy to find uh, you know companies and industries because they haven't quite resorted to um, lasering in on on individuals as much yet, although I'm sure that that is coming. But for example, with with ExxonMobil, um, let me just find this real quick. Yeah, so one of the largest elements of this this international cabal that that is behind ESG are are the world's largest asset management firms. Uh, BlackRock, State Street Global Advisors, and and Vanguard, collectively known as the Big Three, um, and then between the three of them, at least at the time of the publication of this paper a few months ago, they controlled at least two hundred uh, twenty two trillion dollars in, in assets under management between them, as well as an average of twenty percent of the shareholder votes in the S and P five hundred, and they they wield this power, you know, ruthlessly. Uh, for example, BlackRock organized a takeover of ExxonMobil's board of directors in 2021, replacing three of its 12 directors with climate activists uh, committed to moving Exxon away from hydrocarbon-based energy production and sales, which, of course, goes against their entire business model. And less less public examples of that are, are legion, I'm sure. A lot of them don't get publicized because... It would probably produce a little bit of a public, public uproar. Um, and then uh, for for another example, um, and this is very interesting. And uh, I had mentioned the office, of the comptroller, of the currency earlier in 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 the context of the Trump administration's rule that would uh, that would have institutionalized fair access to financial services. But in November 2020, the OCC found that uh, financial institutions devoted to ESG practices had over nearly a two-year period attempted to debank and or deny services entirely to numerous industrial sectors, including healthcare and social service providers, family planning organizations, independent ATMs, firearm manufacturers, the agricultural industry, and multiple major energy industries that are vital to U.S. infrastructure and power generation, such as coal mining, coal-fired electricity generation, and oil exploration. Um, and then things like that happen all the time now. I, I mean, I have another example here. Um, the banking industry in in particular is at the forefront of this, uh, according to a 2020, uh, 2021 report from Morningstar um, and, and their pro-research, uh, pro-ESG research arm, Sustainalytics, most major banks 
screen, and this is a quote from the report, most major banks screen their lending practices against specific ESG risks, and many embrace negative or positive screening for potential corporate lending transactions or private finance transactions. Negative screening and norm-based screening involve the exclusion or avoidance of transactions not aligned with environmental, social, and ethical standards. So th this is systemic. This is not isolated. Th this is all over the place. And, and one of the biggest bankers and the, the head of Bank of America, the, the, the chairman and CEO of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan, is at the center of all of this ESG stuff, apart from perhaps Larry Fink and, and uh, World Economic Forum chairman Klaus Schwab. He is probably the the most powerful person behind this. And, and during a, a recent, uh, during the World Economics Forum's uh, 2022 annual summit, he committed to using the entire financial portfolio of Bank of America, including the deposits of individual account holders to advance ESG. I quote, 200,000 people, a $3 trillion balance sheet, $60 billion in expenses. You start aiming that gun you take that across all these companies, it is huge. The companies delivering on the metrics will get more capital. The ones that won't will get less. That's about as simple as it gets right there. That, that's how these people operate. Didn't you have a story about a doctor getting debanked because they didn't like what he was saying about... Uh... Uh, I don't think that I've written yeah. personally about what happened, but uh, Dr. Joseph Mercola in Florida um, was recently uh, debanked, and not just him, but but his entire company, and I believe his his family was debanked from J.P. Morgan um, for no reason at all. But but the speculation is that uh, it was due to his um, his COVID nineteen uh, vaccine skepticism, and uh, he actually, from from what I understand, has has officially. Uh, sued uh, J.P. Morgan via the the, the recently enacted uh, Florida legislation um, that uh, DeSantis and the legislator ushered through in in May that that gives fair access to financial services for everybody. So that that's going to present a very um, major test run of the new law and whether it holds up in court. So what was going on, uh, getting back to uh, Exxon and BlackRock, uh, BlackRock had a lot of money in Exxon. And and what's, what do they get out of it if they replace the three of the board members with the climate alarmists? Why would they do that? That's a good question. Um, they probably because they are heavily invested in uh, green energy and, and the entire transition to, to, to green energy and away from fossil fuels. Uh, I don't have any specific numbers on that, but they've been heavily involved. Uh, they're they're very invested in, uh, you know, China and and China's production of a lot of these EV batteries. And uh, I would imagine that forcing these companies to shift away from entrenched um, practices into the practices that BlackRock and these companies are invested in makes them more money, gives them more power. It's that simple. Uh, what do you think is going on with Berkshire Hathaway and ESG? Because I think Warren Buffett has kind of spoken out against ESG, but they're making a lot of money off of wind turbines. And Charlie Munger has a lot of positive things to say about China. And also they required a VAX pass to get into their meeting uh, a year ago. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I guess, is there some division in there about, uh, are they for it or against it? 
There might be. I I actually I don't know too much about Berkshire Hathaway's um, commitments for or against ESG. I, I have read similar things to what to what you mentioned about about their um, you know it, uh, their their support for ESG, but. I would imagine just based on private conversations I've had with with folks that are high up in banks uh, and and other you know financial organizations that there are a lot of people that don't like the precedent that ESG is setting and don't like being bossed around, but they they have to toe the line publicly. But in private, they are very unhappy with with this this um, this sequence of events and what they see as coercion uh, and and that's what it is it, it it's coercive at its at its roots and no company likes being told what to do especially if it negatively impacts their bottom line oh what do you think uh looking ahead in the next year or two what do you anticipate happening you think there's going to be big battles over this and are the good guys going to win or what do you think i would imagine we'll see just just like we did this year a lot of activity within within states and we will see some success i I have a I have a map uh, in this paper um, where it, it it's it's called the anti ESG action map. Um, anti ESG policy has already been enacted in uh, Florida, West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Texas, North Dakota, and Utah. Um, there is going to be, uh, according to our our government relations experts who do direct outreach to to legislators, there is anti-ESG policy that will soon be enacted as in within the next uh, legislative session in 2024, potentially within uh, New Hampshire, Iowa, Nebraska, Idaho, and Montana. And then there has been ESG or anti-ESG policy proposed in many other states. uh, And it's either, you know, stalled in committee or it's just on hold until the next legislative session. Uh, Of course, state legislative sessions only last a few months and and so it's it's hard to educate legislators about an issue and then have them um follow up on that issue in in such a short amount of time so we've been doing a lot of outreach uh in preparation for the the 2024 sessions very good all right anything else you'd like to cover or anything else i should have asked that i didn't ask yet before we wrap up no, I, I I think we we were pretty comprehensive. I think we covered a lot. Yeah. Okay. Very good. All right. We will wrap up then. Uh, thank you very much, Jack McFerrin, and I hope to have you on uh, again. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Thanks, Tom. Me too. All right. Bye. Come on.